Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 1, 1 through 26. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters of the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. If you are just joining us, and I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and it is a exciting time in the life of our church. First, we had a parenting conference this past weekend. I'm a little worn out. I got to be honest. I'm a little worn out. Uh, Friday night and then Saturday, it was. Uh, we had a great turnout. It was a great time focusing on parenting. What does it mean to be gospel-centered parenting and or parents and raising children that are going to keep the faith into the next generation? That was a good time this weekend. And then also, it's an exciting time because we have signed a purchase agreement with Hope Church in Bettendorf to purchase their current building as they build a new one. Really? Come on. Now, now listen, I know we're tired, but we're not that tired. Come on. Listen, um, we have been, we've been looking for a building literally for 11 years. We've been actively 
praying and searching for one for about five years. And in the past two years, the staff have been talking about it. I've been visiting every single church that has come available on the market. I've been checking out all kinds of different buildings like Michael's Fun Worlds and, and car lots and any building that could house us. I've been through and dreamed about and thought, maybe, I mean, the youth were really leaning towards that Michael's Fun World idea. Alex wanted that go-kart track. Uh, but thanks be to God, we don't have that ugly building, and he gave us a church building, okay? Uh, we are thrilled about it. Oh, about that church, well, they're about five, five minutes from here. They're located off of 18th Street and Middle Road in Bettendorf. They have a nice, flat parking lot that we, you know what, we do know what we're going to do with it. We're going to park cars there. We have three different, four different parking lots. We're all over the place here. They got 130 spaces, just flat. And then they've got street parking on top of that. It's got a 400 seat sanctuary that we can fit our folks in. We've got plenty of classroom space for all of our children because the Lord has blessed us and we are multiplying. We've got office space downstairs in the basement. We've got a full kitchen area. We've got uh, kind of like a multi-purpose room where we can have wedding receptions and the like. And we can also, uh, the youth can, the youth can meet down there. We've got plenty of space for right now, and we're just really thrilled and really thankful that God has made this available to us. Um, it's just an evidence of God's grace and his provision. Like, we felt God leading, to, leading us to do this. We thought, well, two years down the road, because we don't see any, you know, any buildings. We've heard of a couple buildings that should be coming available in a couple years, but let's do this um, offering. Let's do this building campaign that we started in December. We raised $250,000 and that was just going to sit in the bank and then we got to raise a lot more. Well, then all of a sudden, 52 days later, as Nehemiah built the wall, God gave us this building. It's an absolute miracle. We are blown away. So, yeah. So, we should be closing on this building in 30 to 40 days. And then we're going to begin uh, several months worth of remodeling to make it into our Sacred City home. We've got our own style. We've got our own. We want it to feel like Sacred City when we move into it and not like, you know, a, 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 another church. Let's just say it like that. Not like another church. So we're going to do some remodeling on it. And um, it's going to take a, a lot of continued effort from all of us. So we told our members uh, about two weeks ago that we're continuing this building campaign. We want to raise at least another 4000 bucks a, a month um, to keep uh, to remodel this building. So we need you to keep praying, keep giving towards our building campaign. We're going to do some pledges. For, we're going to start with our members, then we're going to offer it to everyone else where we're pledging to give a certain amount above and beyond our tithes that can go specifically to this building so that we can uh, renew it, we can make it beautiful, and then we can prepare it to move in and do uh, many more years of gospel ministry there. Now, on top of the giving camp and the building campaign that's still active and ongoing, um, I'm, I'm wanting anyone who wants to be involved in the remodel, anybody wants to help, whether or just in, um, you know, we're going to need cleaning, we're going to need that done, we're going to need demo, we're going to need painting, we're going to need construction, electrical, all kinds of things. So if you are a tradesman and I don't know it, we would like to know it. And you can scan that, that QR code there with your camera app in the uh, bulletin or from the screen, and you can just put your name in. Give, give me your email address and say, this is what I do, or this is how I want to help. And uh, because we're going we're gonna to have, uh, have a lot of work days and we're going to get over there and we're going to do as much work as we can so that we can save as much money as we can and we can just be good stewards of our, of our resources. So please fill that out. Let me know if you want to help and uh, we will need all hands on deck. Now, lastly, another reason it's an exciting time here in our church is we began a new sermon series last week. Uh, in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. We're, we're calling this study Origins and uh, because we're looking back at our beginning and we're studying the beginnings. Now, it's interesting to me that there's some people who don't think it's important to actually look back and study the beginnings. They're fascinated by today and they want to talk about the future, but they never want to go back and study our origins. There's even many Christians that say things like, hey, there's so much controversy back there in the origins. Where did we come from? How did it all begin? What's up with evolution? What's up with all these different philosophies? There's just so much controversy back there and there's so much, people fight about so much stuff. Let's just forget about that and let's just talk about Jesus. Let's just focus on Jesus. Let's just focus on the gospel and let's move away from our origins and talking about creation. 
Well, as I said last week, the problem with that is if you get creation wrong, you can't get the gospel right. If you get creation wrong, you can't get Jesus right. In fact, without creation, there is nothing for Jesus to save. Do you hear that? Without creation, there's nothing for Jesus to save. So creation is the stuff of salvation. When the Bible makes these bold claims that Jesus is redeeming not just humans, but all of creation, what does that mean? That means God is redeeming, renewing, restoring his original intent, what he was started with in the Garden of Eden. So it's important for us, if we want to know where we're headed, if we want to know the goal of all things, we have to go back and study the beginning. We've got to study our origins. Well, last week as we began our study, we got introduced to the creator himself, the triune God, the author of everything that is. And we learned that his name, first, the first revealed name was Elohim. And Elohim means, uh, or Elohim is plural. And we immediately learn that God exists as a trinity. He's one God, but he has three persons. We're going to see more of that uh, today. And ultimately, what the Bible reveals to us when we go back to study creation is that the Bible itself is ultimately a story. It's the greatest story that's ever been told. It's the story that makes sense of all things. It makes sense of who you are. It makes sense of what you want, what you desire in life, where you're going. It gives you a purpose, a meaning, and value. This is the story that makes sense of everything else. And today, what's going to happen is the curtain will rise and we will see God meticulously order and structure the setting where his story will take place. His story, we, we, we talk about it big picture, it's, it's a story with four acts. Act one is creation. Act two is the fall when everything goes bad. Act three is redemption and act four is final restoration. That's what the Bible's about. That's the story of God. Now, unfortunately, too many Christians are unaware of this story. They don't know that the Bible is primarily a story. And as a result, they miss out on so much of its brilliance. Jesus came to die for my sins. Okay, I come to him as a savior. Now what? What am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? What does that have to do with my finances? What does this have to do with my marriage? What does this have to do with my kids? What does this have to do with science and biology and my work life, right? If we don't understand that the Bible is primarily a story and the gospel is primarily a story, it won't make sense of the majority of our life. Now, another reason we want to understand that the gospel is primarily a story is because stories are much more powerful than other forms of uh, revelation. Let's say it like that. Stories have a way of kind of sucking us in, capturing our imagination, capturing our desires. Stories are captivating and formative. And guess what isn't like that? Science textbooks, Right? <laughs> That's what's not like that. Biology textbooks don't entrance us and make us forget time and space. Actually, they might by putting us to sleep, right? That's the only way they make us forget about time and space, right? I've never caught my children late at night under the covers with a flashlight reading biology textbooks, right? Chemistry. Dad, it's chemistry, <laughs> right? No, but stories have the power to do that. Stories can make you want to grab that good book and take it to the fort and read all day long. Stories have that power of sucking us in. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay that he titled Myth Became Fact. And he said this, a man who disbelieved the Christian story as fact, but continually fed on it as myth, would perhaps be more spiritually alive than one who assented to it, they thought it was true, but didn't think that much about it. So there is, what, he, what Lewis is saying here, he, first off, he's not saying that the Bible is a myth in the sense that it's not true, okay? What he's saying is that story, Lewis was an expert in story and myth. 
I mean, that's, his PhD was in mythology. He knew all the stories of the, the, the different cultures that came before him. He was an expert in languages, an expert in all of these myths. And he knew that myth, every culture had its own myth, myths that defined its culture. And these myths had a power to them that they could suck people in, shape them into a certain type of person. Like courageous myths shape people to be courageous, right? And sent them back out into the world to live a certain way. But fact is something different. People aren't inspired by facts, right? Stories do something to us. Facts, we just kind of mentally assent to, yeah, that's probably true, and we try to remember them, right? But stories are, many times stories become unforgettable. Facts, they're hard to hold on to most of the time. Fact is one-dimensional. You read it and hear it, and then you try to store it away in your memory. For me, I I'm not good with facts. You know what I have for facts? A cell phone. Cell phone allows me to Google facts, right? I don't really want to know, you know, a lot of things. It's just like, it's like people's phone numbers. We don't care about those anymore, right? We just, poop, there it is. Yeah, I, don't, I don't care. We used to have to remember, children, you, you have no idea. We used to have to remember phone numbers, okay? It was a crazy time back then, right? <laughs> Now we don't. Now we don't, right? We have them in our phone. We, that's the way facts are. But stories, we rarely forget stories. Stories are multidimensional. They pull us in. They capture our heart, capture our imagination. We picture them and they can, they can boggle our minds. They can blow our minds. A good story can grip your soul and move your emotion and literally just wisp you away to never, never land where you go, man, I wish that place was true. Oh, wasn't that cool? You know, you go, you go see Avatar and it can suck you in. It, it can shape your mind. You go, oh man, I really like that. So cool. Stories have a way of doing that. They actually can change our desires. They can make us want to be certain types of people. Men, right? Have you ever watched Gladiator? Come on now. Russell Crowe just went downhill from there, right? Like, that is it. The Gladiator is an epic movie, and you watch that movie, and you want, you, you embrace it, and you want to be like him, right? You watch Tombstone. Come on now. Yeah. I'm your Huckleberry, right? Let's go. Let's go. These stories have a way of sucking us in, right? And, and, they, and they, you literally, you watch those movies, and you kind of go, that's the kind of man I want to be. That's the kind of story I want to live. That's, that's, that's the power of story. And C.S. Lewis knew this very intimately. Now, this is interesting because Lewis was a staunch atheist. And he was a literature pro professor at Oxford when he met an, a fellow author and storyteller, J.R.R. Tolkien. Now, these two guys, because of their fascination with stories, and they, they would meet together, and a, a couple other guys as well, at a local pub outside of Oxford, England, called the Eagle and Child, and they would smoke their pipes, and they would drink a pint of ale, and they would discuss literature. Well, it just so happened in the sovereign plan of God that Tolkien was a Christian. And one day, Tolkien planted a seed in Lewis's mind that eventually came to fruition and led to him becoming a Christian himself. And this is how he did it. One day, Tolkien said, don't you think it's so strange that people love and crave the supernatural? Every society in the history of mankind have believed in a God. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in demons and gods and all these different things. Isn't that weird that every civilization in human history has, has, has believed in that? Why do all, all civilizations everywhere love stories where good triumphs over evil? Where the hero overcomes insurmountable odds to cheat death and save the day at the nick of time? Why do we always love that? Why do people love stories about eternal youth and eternal happiness? Why do we crave to be more than human? superhuman, godlike. Think about it. The fountain of youth, the holy grail, the Marvel universe, right? These stories are in every single civilization. Why do people have such an infatuation with living forever if life is utterly meaningless? If we're just dust and matter and from dust we came and dust will go and there's nothing after this, why do we crave eternal life? Why do we crave the supernatural? Well, Tolkien told Lewis 
The reason we love stories of the supernatural is because at a deeper level, we know this is how life is supposed to be. In our DNA, there's a memory trace of the Garden of Eden where we walked and talked with God and we were meant to live forever. Life, Tolkien said, should be more like a fairy tale. Lewis said this, I love it. Lewis's response, he was an atheist. Yeah, you're right, that is true. And he said this, fairy tales and myths are lies breathed through silver. And what he meant by that is, they are beautiful lies, aren't they? Man, oh, what? Yes, they're not true, but oh, man, we just love them. And they're just so good. They're just so beautiful. He's saying we want to believe them, but they're not true. And this is where Tolkien turned the conversation into a life-changing gospel conversation. He said, not true, my friend. Look at the gospel. Look at the Bible. Everything from your fairy tales is there, except they are all true. You have love overcoming hate. You have good triumphing over evil. You have the ultimate selfless hero, Jesus, who humbly lays his life down to save us but over, by overcoming death at the last moment when it looks like all hope is lost, literally dies and then is resurrected to new life. You have the true king of the universe, Jesus, entering into his creation to slay the dragon and win his wife, the bride, the church, right? Tolkien said, and this is his, his phrase, the gospel is the true myth. See, Jesus is the underlying reality that every other story points to. All of those stories that tap into something deep within our gut, Jesus is the one all of those stories are pointing to. He is the ultimate hero. He is the ultimate man. He is the God man who enters creation to, to redeem it and restore it. When Jesus came back from the dead to never die again, he punched a hole into Never Neverland. That's heaven. That's heaven. He created access for us to enter into that eternal life, that eternal youth, that eternal beauty. And in the new heavens and the new earth, what we love about the fairy tales is going to be everyday life. We will see God face to face. There will be no death. Everything sad will become untrue. There will be eternal life, everlasting love, and ultimate satisfaction. Now, I want to start here because this is the perspective I want us to have as we begin to study Genesis. We are diving into the beginning of the greatest and truest story ever told, the myth that became fact. This isn't meant to be read like a textbook. It's not systematic theology. It's not written by a scientist to fellow scientists. This book was inspired by the Holy Spirit and written most likely by Joshua and Moses as Moses was struggling to teach several million Israelites about their history, their origins, where they came from, their calling, and their God. So that's the goal of this, is it teaches about God, teaches about the world. It's not to study it under a microscope. We want to break everything down in parts and understand it like that. No, no, no. First and foremost, this is a story. Now, why? Because only story has the power to convey truth with beauty and glory in, in a very unique way. Listen, how do I say this? Math is true, but I don't pay good money to the theater to watch it. Right? But art, beauty, story, there's something behind that that I do pay good money to go hear and to go see. This is why God gave us a story. If God wanted to, you know, give us quadratic equations to prove his existence, he could have. But that's not what he did, right? <laughs> quadratic equations don't motivate me to love my wife, disciple my kids, serve my city. If God wanted to only give us empirical evidence and equations, he could have, but instead, thank God, he gave us a story. We are story-shaped people, and God gave us a story. So, in our story, in Genesis 1-1 here, the curtain is being raised, and this is the first act. Again, I'm going to have to, by the end, I'm going to have to cheat and get us to act 2, 3, and 4, okay? But by and large today, we're just studying 
Act one. So before we do, let me pray for us and we can get to work. Gracious God, we wouldn't know anything about you if you didn't reveal yourself to us. And so right now we ask that you would speak to us. For all the teenagers in this room, all the young people, Father God, whatever age, I pray that you would uniquely speak to them today. Show them something special about you, about your act of creation, about themselves. Would you open up our eyes and let us see your glory? God, I am not adequate to declare such wonderful truths. And so I pray that you would inspire my thinking, that you would speak through my vocal cords, that, that your people would hear your voice. Lord, help me declare your majestic truth and all of its glory. I pray that you would do this for your glory and our joy and the good of our city. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, last week we saw verse one. Let me quickly run through it really quick. In the beginning, God, right? What is that telling us? God is the point. In the very beginning, God existed all by himself. He existed, he was self-existence. That all that existed was God, okay? And then in the beginning, God created. Everything, that that everything else that exists exists in a different category than God himself. There is God and there is creation. Think of two big circles. Everything exists in one of those circles. God is the point. In Genesis 1.1 and most of Genesis 1, God is the sole actor. He's the uncreated creator. Again, Genesis is not a science book that's so going to tell us everything we want to know about the way he created the universe. That is not its purpose. That is not to say that it is opposed to science. It isn't. Creation is not opposed to science. The Bible is not opposed to science. Christianity is not opposed to science. Science was invented by Christians, okay? If you want to know more about that, you can ask me and I can go into it later. Science only tells us what is. The Bible, it, science cannot tell us why anything exists. Can't tell us purpose, meaning, right? But Christianity can, God can. Genesis tells us why. It shows us the meaning of it all. It gives us the purpose behind all of creation. Everything exists by God, for God. Now Moses here is showing the Israelites and us by extension that God is the creator and controller of all things. He's the author who's writing everything in. He's the first actor in this epic story of redemption. The Bible says in the beginning, God created. That word created is bara. It means he brought things into existence out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the Latin phrase. God brought things into existence out of nothing. This shows us that creation is a free act of the divine will of God. God, in his own mind, chose to create. He didn't need to create. He was eternally, happily, all by himself. He chose to create for his own purposes. That means that God conceived of creation in his own mind, willed it to freely come into existence, and chose purposely to create it. So Christianity says this to everything that exists. You're here because God willed it. You're here because God purposefully chose to create you. That's a, that's a good thing. Like naturalistic evolution, different things like that. They literally say, you're here by an accident. You got here by a big chance. That's why you're here. We don't know why you're here. We don't think you have a purpose. We just know you're here. Right? Science. Thanks, science. That's helpful. I'm here. Whew. Needed your help on that. Great. He says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what this is saying, Genesis 1 is basically creation, a, cre a description of creation from 30,000 foot view. You're up in the airplane, you're looking down, you can see all things. And, and what you see up there, you see earth, you see rivers, you see how you see this, right? Genesis 2 is going to zoom down in and it's going to show us from a close up how God created man and woman. But this first act, acts of creation, he creates heaven and he creates, or the heavens, and he creates the earth. This is, heavens are where God lives, the Bible talks about, the heavens, okay? Think about angels, think about all this kind of stuff, and then the earth, think about where we live. Now, we do not have a very detailed description of the creation of the heavens. He just created the heavens. We don't know what creation, what, what the heavens ne necessarily look like, right? But we do have a, a, a description of where we live, and where the story of God's redemption is going to play out and the creation of the world. 
that we live in. So in Genesis 1-1, God creates everything. So we can answer the questions, why is there something rather than nothing? Have you, now listen, most of us aren't philosophers. We don't get this. If you take philosophy, you'll learn. But this is a core question. Like, why is there something rather than nothing? Science has no answer to that. They really can't answer that. Christianity, can, we say, why is there something rather than nothing? Because God willed it and God created it. Everything comes from him. Those who don't believe in a creator must answer those questions with some form of, I don't know, I don't know, don't worry about it. It's not important, right? We're just here. We just exist. But then after Genesis 1, so Genesis 1, 1, God kind of, God creates the heavens and he creates, and he creates the earth, right? In the beginning, he created the heavens and he created the earth, but he creates them unique. Look at this. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So here we have God as, as a Spirit actively involved in His creation. He's hovering over the waters. This is where we begin to see some of the stark differences between heaven and earth that maybe you've never thought about. In the heavenly realm, everything is perfect and complete. So the heavens, when the heavens were created, they were created complete. What that means? That means in the beginning, when God created the heavens, he created all the angels that will ever exist. But he, does, he doesn't continue to create anymore. Heaven is perfect in its creation. It's complete in its creation. But the earth is different. He creates it with inherent potential, but begins with an unformed, empty canvas, if you will. The Bible says here that the earth was dark and inhabitable. It was without form and void. And he creates it with potential for life and potential for growth and potential for humanity and different things to, to populate it. But he doesn't create it already complete. He's creating it in a story, creation, the very beginning. And here we have the spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, showing God is intimately involved. He is not removed from his creation like deists say that he is. In other words, he didn't create the world like a clockmaker creates a watch and then just sets it on the nightstand and that watch just continually goes and now he's, he's removed from it. No, no. God is actively present in his creation. And then look at verse 3. And God said... And God said. So now we have God as spirit is a speaking spirit and God is going to begin to produce things through his word. Now this is interesting because you go all the way forward to the gospel of John and in John 1 we learn that this is Jesus. That in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That the word being spoken here is Jesus. So now, this is so fascinating to me, I could just nerd out forever. Thank God we don't have another service coming after this because... I don't know when we're going to end today. So in the Trinity here, we have the Trinity present in, present in creation. The Father is willing it. The Word is Jesus. They're speaking it into existence. And the Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters. The whole Trinity is involved in creation. Here we will begin to see an important pattern emerge in the story of creation. Here it is. It's something like this. God speaks it. Something gets either created, defined, or separated. Then God sees it. So it, everything obeys his word. It happens. Then God sees it and God blesses it. He puts his benediction on it. He says, oh, it is so good. So God says it. God sees it. God blesses it. This is, his, this is how he creates over and over and over again. Now, those who try to read this like a science textbook, they have no creativity. And they look at verse 3 and they say, aha, this doesn't make sense. Look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. They say, oh my goodness, how stupid of a story this is. How could there be light without the sun? God doesn't even create the sun until day four. You think this is actually true? What a joke. How could this be true? Well, listen, that's actually very easy. I don't have an answer for that. 
Is there something else I can help with? Siri, I do not expect you to have an answer for that. Love it. That, is, that was absolutely perfect. That was absolutely perfect. Listen, every single time, it is actually really easy to answer. Every, if you know the story of God, it's easy to answer because every time God shows up in his own story, he shows up as a light bringer. Every time. Angels show up, really bright guys. People fall down and uh, they're, they're scared, scared of him. Moses goes on top of the mountain and meets with God. What happens? God shows up in glory and shows his light and his face shines with light. Then when they build a temple for God, God moves into the temple and the Shekinah glory shows up. And guess what happens? A lot of light. Jesus Christ gets glorified. What happens? He gets really bright. <laughs> That's what happens, right? And then in the and, and if you read uh, Rev, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, in the new heavens and the new earth, guess what we don't need anymore? The sun. Why don't we need in the sun? Why don't we need the sun anymore? Because God himself is our light. Oh, I get a little excited about this. So people want to mock the story and say, oh, look, the creation doesn't make sense. We don't need the sun because God himself is the light. It says the spirit of God is hovering over the face of the earth. Guess what he is? A light bringer. Sorry, I get a little... Get a little excited about that. All right? So, God brings light before he brings the sun. <laughs> Try to make us ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of that. Where, did, where do you think light came from? A big explosion. Oh, a big explosion. Where did that stuff came from? Where, do, where did the stuff that would cause an explosion, where did that come from? doesn't make sense. There has to be an uncreated creator. You get back to it, right? Don't joke about our story when you have no story. Just invent stuff out of nowhere. We know things are here because we're here. You're in the middle of the story, bro. Where did it come from? Go back to the beginning, right? Let's go. And God saw the light and listen to this. The light was good. Light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. See separation? He's defining, he's separating, he's giving things order. God called the light day and the darkness night. God as creator, he's sovereign over his creation. He created it so he can name it, right? God is the one that names things, night, day. I love this. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God says, time, there was no time. He was eternal. And God said, time is now a thing. Fascinating to me. Verse 6. Now, let me just say this. Time. There's a lot of ink that has been spilled on whether or not these are 24-hour literal days where God is creation. And I will just say, I have no reason to see why they're not. I think it's pretty clear in the text that it seems to be he's creating day and night, day and night in a 24-hour period. So I just say, yeah, I think it's 24-hour literal days. Let's keep reading verse 6. And God said, there it is again, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. God here is separating the earth from the sky. Or heavens. He's going to name it here. Look. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. Now this is not the heavens like the spiritual world. This is, what, when you, this is an anthropomorphic way. A human way of speaking. When you stand on the earth and you look up. Right? You're looking into the heavens. You're looking into the sky. The atmosphere. Whatever you want to call it. The Bible calls it here the heavens. Okay? And he's separating the waters that are above from the waters that are below. Again, notice the pattern. God commands. The command gets executed. Happens. Creation gets defined and separated. And then God inspects it and calls it good. And then that is another day. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning. The second day. Verse 9. And God said, 
Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Okay, here we have something new, right? God creates plants that are living and able to multiply. They will bear seeds that will produce after, to their, after their likeness, each according to their kind. So we have something new here. We had inanimate matter. Now all of a sudden we have animate matter. Now all, or now all of a sudden we have life, right? P plant life. Keep reading. Plants yielding seed. Fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God looked at all the plants, all the trees, and God said, it's good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. He's talking about the, st the stars and the moon here. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. So now the, the sun and the stars are going to share in the glory of God a little bit. He's going to give them the light. He's going to give them the light that he has. And they're going to light up and separate the day from the night, the seasons from the years. And it was so. And God made the two great lights this is the moon and the sun, the greater light to rule the day, the sun, and the lesser light to rule, renew, rule the night, and the stars. Now, this is just, and the stars, and the stars. I, I knew I didn't have time to go really deep into this, so all I did was Google. I better not say anything here. <laughs> How many stars are there? And this is the, the first answer that popped up. Using the Milky Way as our model, we can multiply the number of stars in a typical galaxy, 100 billion, by the number of galaxies in the universe, 2 trillion. The answer is an obviously, uh, absolutely astounding number. There are approximately 200 billion trillion stars in the universe. Or to put it another way, 200 sextillion. That's a lot of stars. And God was just like, and the stars. <laughs> this shows us the nature of God, the being of God, the divine power of God, that God is too much for us to grasp. He could have put two up there and we've been happy about it, right? Moon and star, moon and the sun. Cool, thanks God. Wow, isn't it great? Instead, he put 200 sextillion up there, our best guess, right? And he did it with the word of his power, stars. Boom, right? This is the brilliance of God. This is the power of God. This is the majesty of God. This is why if you're bored with God, you don't get him. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds, so let water swarms with swarms of living creatures. He takes the oceans and the seas, fresh water and the salt water, and he fills them with fish and all kinds of crazy things. Later on in the Bible, we're, we, we learn about Leviathan. What, what is Leviathan? Leviathan is dinosaurs. God's literally putting dinosaurs on the earth. He's putting crazy sea creatures into the earth that we know very little what was actually in the ocean because we haven't even explored all of its depths. There's places in the ocean we still haven't got to. Who knows what we're going to find down there? I don't volunteer for that job. But God is creating all of the, think about the diversity in the ocean. We can't even wrap our mind around it, right? We can't even wrap our mind around it. But God is filling the seas and the oceans. 
And then let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heaven. So he's creating birds. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, look, according to their kinds. I do not believe in, in theistic evolution. I do not believe in evolution. God created them according to their kinds. That means he created every special, think about it. Every single fish was custom designed by God himself. Custom designed. The ones, without, the ones without eyes that glow in the dark. He designed that. Custom designed by God. Now, there's difference between microevolution and macroevolution. I'm not going to get into it. This is not a, a science lecture up here. Microevolution, things can, you know, they can adapt to their environment and, and things. But macroevolution, as in species, jumping species, no. It takes way too much faith to believe in that. Keep going. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them. Think about his blessing on the fish. God was pleased with the fish. God was pleased with the birds. Have you ever watched Planet Earth or some show like that and you see the creativity and you see the birds dancing for one another and their mating calls and all the brilliance and all the color, God custom designed it. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Now listen, this is what we need to see. Day five, God creates living creatures, listen, that are perfectly designed and fitted perfectly for their environment. He designs the fish to flourish in water and places the fish in the sea. We need to see this. This is important for our doctrine of creation. For the fish, the water is true freedom. He isn't made for the dry land. To try to live or function outside of its design purpose would lead to death. So God created the waters and then God created the, ant, the fish to swim in the waters and to flourish in the waters. If you've ever had a child and you've ever got them a little pet fish and they got their little globe out and they look at their fish and that child does, man, I love this fish so much. I just hate that it has to stay in here. I want to love this fish. They take it out and they sit it on the dresser. And all of a sudden, what happens? Freedom for the fish becomes sudden death for the fish. Why? God sets the parameters for all of his creatures. A fish was meant to live in water and not outside water, right? Now, I bring this up because it's going to be very important once we get to Adam and Eve, once we get to the creation of mankind. We also have parameters that if we function outside of those, we'll bring, we'll bring death and destruction. All right. The birds he designed for the air and God blesses them and commands them to be fruitful. Hear that first command. Look at this. Um, and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So God blesses just like the trees were meant to reproduce. Fish were meant to reproduce. He blesses the birds. They're meant to reproduce. God has set a standard here. And it, we're going to be the same thing. What If you function within your divinely ordered thing, you're meant to be fruitful and multiply and reproduce. Verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth. Sorry, ladies, God custom designed the creeping things too. They have a purpose. They're meant to be here. It's so interesting because many times human beings in the history of the world and history of civilizations, they've like, we have too many whatever. We have too many mice. We have too many this. We have too many bugs. And they've tried, they've literally killed those things. And what happens inevitably, every time this has happened, something else takes over. They create some kind of chaos and some kind of catastrophe for their civilization. Why? Because God has custom designed every single creature on the planet to, to either, you know, to eat, to eat bugs smaller than it, right? Or to be eaten by things bigger than it, right? And if you take away one of those things, something else is going to either be destroyed or it's going to, going to take over. This world is fine-tuned by God himself for all life. Okay, let's keep reading. And God saw that it was good, verse 26. Then God said, here we go. This is the culmination of creation. Let us... He's speaking as a trinity. Make man in, and that word man there is 
uh, the general term for man. It, it means it includes man and woman, and it's, it's basically earthling. Let us, Trinity, make man in our image, man being an earthling, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps over all the earth. Now, dominion is a word we don't use very often anymore, and it's a word that means to rule over, to exercise authority over. And God says, here's the image. God has set the stage like a movie producer, right? He, set, he, he put creation there. He's filled it with everything he wants, the fish, the birds, the insects, everything that's there. Everything's functioning according to his laws, the way that he wants it. Then he puts Adam and Eve in it, right? God himself has put the heavens there, the seas there, the sky. He sets limits on all of his creation. He's defined where and how they are to flourish. He's filled the skies with birds, the seas with fish, the earth with plants and trees, and every creeping thing and livestock. And now look, now he places his greatest of all of his creation, the pinnacle of his creation, his king and queen, who are meant to rule his world as God's own vice regents. Now, a vice regent is a deputy. It's somebody who rules in another stead, a person who acts in the place of a ruler, governor, or sovereign. So God creates Adam and Eve to go rule his creation as little kings and queens under his rule. Now, next week, we're going to sit down and we're going to study in depth what does it mean to be made Imago Dei and what were... What, were man, what made uh, man and woman unique in all of God's creation. But first, what I want you to notice is how orderly this whole thing is. I want you to see structure here. I want you to see order here. I want you to see that everything fits together. Everything works together. Now, philosophers, Christian philosophers have called this, they either call it the ontological argument for God, or you can call it the fine-tuning argument. I don't have time to go into it today. If you want to Google fine-tuning argument and William Lane Craig, you're going to find out things like this. If we were uh, one degree closer to the sun, we would burn up. If we were one degree away from the sun, we would freeze to death. That life this, we have been, the, the, the universe has been finely tuned and organized for us to flourish and function here. It is not an accident. There's a big problem with the Big Bang. Not only where did all the stuff that went bang came from, but also here's what uh, atheistic um, scientists tell us. If the bang would have been one percentage points more intense, then all the planets would have just been dust and would have just blown out and would have nothing could have been created. And if there was just, if there was a one percentage point less power, then we, the galaxy wouldn't be expanding and as big as it is right now. And there would, wouldn't be life. There wouldn't be life itself. So all, everything exists. The finely tuned nature that we all inhabit this world. We breathe the air, the fish are in the oceans, the birds can, all of it speaks of a rational, intelligent, logical, powerful, Creative creator, Amen. not an accident. So here's what we know so far about creation as I begin to close. God willed it. He spoke it into creation through Jesus. The spirit was active in creation and everything obeyed the voice of God. The night had a boundary it couldn't cross. The seas were divided from the dry land. The earth from the sky, the fish from the birds, from the earth-dwelling animals, everything that had life was to reproduce after its own kind. The earthlings were made distinct from the rest of creation, being made in the image of God after his likeness, and they were to rule over the earth as vice regents under God, and everything was declared good. It was good. Creation is good. The earth was good. The seas were good. The skies were good. The animals were good. Human beings and their flesh was good. Now I bring this up because this worldview is actually very unique in the world and in the history of the world. 
Christianity is the only worldview or religion that says Christianity, or I mean, creation is objectively good and yet not ultimate. Creation is objectively good and yet not ultimate. Those who don't believe in a creator, they say, well, creation just is. We can't say whether it's good or bad. It just is. It's in a constant state of evolution or change. And so we cannot make a moral judgment about it or an aesthetic judgment about it. So you say, man, that sunset is glorious. And your atheist neighbor says, well, that's just your opinion. That's your subjective opinion. And the Christian should respond, nope, it's glorious because Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. When I see that sky, that sky was hand-painted by God himself. Now, I don't care what he used to make it. It was hand-painted for me. And nobody gets the perspective that I get on that sky. All my neighbors, they can walk out. They have a different perspective than I. That was custom-painted for them. We are meant to look up at the sky and see the handiwork of the creator and say, God is glorious. Now, other religions, like Hinduism say that creation is bad. It's evil, and the only thing good is spirit. So this world doesn't really matter. Think about that. Your family, your friends, your work, your play, they aren't real. This is the worldview of the matrix, What's real is only the spirit. What's real is only the afterlife. Now listen, there there are even some Christians who have been informed by what's a philosophy called Greek from the Greeks called Gnosticism that they've been they believe that actually creation is bad and the, the spirit is only good. That's not what the doctrine of creation teaches us. Some Christians believe who really cares about this earth and who really cares about our physical body? What really matters is heaven and the afterlife. No, 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 no. Heaven and the afterlife aren't the end of the story. The end of the story is a totally renewed cosmos. So creation matters. Stuff matters. Flesh matters. And it's good. God says declaratively, this world is good. Sea and sky, earth and water, animals, your body, it's all good. Now, this is why I talk to so many guys that say, man, I don't know why I just come alive when I'm in the woods, when I'm fishing or when I'm hunting. And I say, because this is how God created you. God created you to enjoy those things. God created you to sit there and wait for that buck to walk across your path. And then all of a sudden, that heart rate increases and your vision narrows and you don't remember any of the stuff back at home. You don't remember the bills that need to be paid or the things that need to be done. All you're thinking about is this animal and putting it in your freezer. (laughs) God made you for that. When God put Adam in the garden, he, he put them in a world full of possibilities. Go take dominion over all the creation was this. Go out there and break that stick off that tree and then go shear that sheep and turn that streep, that, 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 that wool into fishing line and put it on that stick and then go and find some iron ore in the ground, pull it out, separate it from iron, pound that thing out, make a fishing hook and then go throw that in, maybe dig down and find yourself a worm, put that on there and then go out there And throw it in the ocean and see what I put there for you. This world is good. When you enjoy hunting, when you enjoy fishing, when you enjoy the sunset, when you enjoy the 50 degrees outside to the glory of God today, right? Say, thank God he did this for us. He's good. But... As I said in the beginning, remember, this is just scene one. Here we have the scene being set, the curtain rises, and everything is good. We all know what comes next. Things go bad. But you'll notice as the story begins to unfold, God doesn't destroy his creation. 
I have a lot of kids. I have five kids. And when my kids mess up on a drawing, you know what they do? <laughs> Give me another one. Right? This is what we do. We, we make a bad cut on a piece of wood. We throw it away. We get another one. Right? We, we, we're, we're forming and molding something. It doesn't work. We start over. That's not what God did. God could have erased, erased, erased creation. God could have annihilated us and started over. But he chose to do something different. He chose to redeem creation. Now, it takes a long time in the story of God and the Bible to really see how he's going to do this. There are a lot of hints and foreshadowing. But when the reality shows up, it comes like a smack across the face. It, it sounds like a bomb going off. God does what was previously unthinkable. He sends the second member of the Trinity, the Son, who is a spirit. He sends him into his broken creation. Now, with Adam, Adam was put in a sinless creation. Now, the new Adam, Jesus Christ, he enters into a sinful creation. So how can God, who is holy, enter into his sinful and marred creation? Last week, I used the analogy of, of a human being creating a Lego set and then somehow becoming a Lego inside that. This is what it's like. This is what the incarnation is like. It's meant to blow our minds like that. God created man's sin, but then God sent his son Jesus to come in and redeem the world. And what does that mean? He took our place in the cross. He became what we should have been. He lived a perfect life. He dies a substitutionary death. And then he rises on the third day to live new life. And his resurrection shows us something about the future. He has a physical body. Jesus was not a ghost. He was not a spirit that just was going to float off into heaven. He had a physical body, and then, yes, he was going to heaven. So right now in heaven, there is, a, there is flesh and blood in heaven right now. And he tells us his plan is not just to redeem human beings so that we can go and meet with God. Yes, he is doing that. His plan is bigger than that. He's redeeming all of creation. All of creation. I, I think we're going to fish in heaven. I think, I think it's going to happen. So what we're moving towards in the future is a renewed and restored creation. But in the future, it looks less like a garden and more like a city. Our cultural creation comes in with us. There's musical instruments. There's, there's diff all kinds of different things in the new heavens and the new earth. But here's what we need to see. When Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived and died, he punched a hole into the new heavens and the new earth. Ultimate reality that we can have access to now. He gives us eternal life. He allows us to walk with God. He shows us what the future is going to be like and he fills our life with a new purpose that we can have right now. See, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ doesn't make you better than you were before. The Bible tells us he makes us into new creations in Christ Jesus. You become totally new. You get a new heart. You get a new mind. Do you still struggle with sin? Yes, absolutely. But you're called righteous in Christ. You're called a son or a daughter of God. You get a new identity. And then that fills your whole life with purpose. You go out and you do your work in a different way. You're doing it now for the glory of God and the good of the new heavens and the new earth. You're, you're making, yes, you're still making babies and you're still parenting, but you're doing it for the new heavens and the new earth. You're populating, you're creating kings and queens that are going to rule and have dominion over the earth like Adam and Eve were supposed to. If, when you understand the doctrine of creation, it teaches us who you are, what you're here for, what Jesus is redeeming us into. It's glorious. So if you haven't embraced Jesus Christ by faith, what are you waiting for? Everything you want out of life, right? You find in Jesus Christ. Love, joy, peace, happiness, patience, kindness, self-control, eternal life, eternal happiness, eternal blessedness. I could go on and on and on. Meaning, purpose in this life. Something that can wake you up every morning and fill you with purpose and fill you with passion. When we embrace Christ by faith, God writes us into the true myth. 
You become a character in his story. And your whole life can take on new meaning. We are redeemed kings and queens set out into our father's world to make disciples, to plant churches, and renew our city for the glory of God. That's good news this morning. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we thank you for this story. I pray that it would grip our hearts, it would shape our minds, shape our desires, shape our lives. We would live into it and you would meet us here. For those who don't know you, I pray that you would meet them powerfully right now. Jesus Christ, by your spirit, would you convict them of their sin? Would you show them what you have done for them? Would you give them faith to believe it? Would you save them? Write them into your story. For those of us who are already written into your story, Father God, I pray that you would encourage us by faith. One of the realities that we get to celebrate this morning is the Lord's Supper. And I'm just moved by the thought that you gave, you created seed-bearing plants like wheat so that you could send Adam out to figure out how to harvest that wheat and how to beat that wheat and turn that wheat and and to cook that and turn that into bread so that one day you could break that bread and you could say, this is my body that was broken for you. And you gave fruit-bearing things like the, the, the grapevine to produce grapes. And you gave human beings the ability to, to smash those grapes and ferment those grapes and to create wine. So one day you could take a cup of wine and you could say, this is the cup of the new covenant. It represents my blood that was spilled for you. So Father, we eat in wonder this morning as a part of your creation, as your redeemed sons and daughters, your kings and queens this morning. We eat in wonder of what you have done for us, Jesus, entering into the story, shedding your blood to save us from our sins. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.